You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. On this final episode of CRST, the podcast in 2022, we're taking a look back at some of our favorite moments from the episodes our listeners loved most. Please enjoy these highlights from the top five most listened to episodes in 2022. Hello, everybody. This is Rob Weinstock, and welcome to CRST, the podcast. I'm Kathy McCabe. Hi, I'm Dr. Dean Lager. Hello, I'm Carolini Maya Rocha. Uh, this is Brian Kim. Kicking things off is a clip from our first and most listened to episode of the year, Top FACO Saves, with host Dr. Ben LaHood. Today I'm joined by two great surgeons from around the world. I've got Dr. Ahmed Asif from Cairo, Egypt. I've got Dr. Steve Seferin from New Jersey. Thank you both for coming. Now, today we're starting the year off in style with CRST's first podcast for 2022. You'll notice that CRST's January issue features 10 best-in-class videos from the FACO Saves video contest, for which I served as a judge. Of course, I never have complications, so I couldn't enter. In reviewing the submissions, we judges were asked to evaluate each video based first on its difficulty, the management strategy, and the final outcome. We also looked at the production value, creativity, and artistic merit. There were, of course, many fantastic submissions, but today I'm grateful to be joined by two of the submitters of the highest ranked videos, Dr. Steve Safran, and overall winner, Dr. Ahmed Asif. Ahmed, let's start by uh, discussing your case, because this one really made a a real impact on the judges. It was really impressively done, but an unusual case. For anyone that hasn't watched the video yet, can you share a brief description of the case and how you managed it when things went wrong? Yes, uh, it was a routine cataract case, uh, white cataract, just a routine white cataract case. And as you know, the most challenging part of these cases is to do the rexes. So I managed uh, beautifully to do the rexes with, after staining with Triban Blue. And I thought at that time that I have finished the case because as you know, usually the white cataract is not hard as other forms of cataract like the Brunison cataract. So at that time, I thought that I have finished the case until I realized that I have a large piece of the nucleus, almost a third part of the nucleus has been fallen inside the anterior vitreous. So uh, I, I thought I had a, a break inside the posterior capsule and I was astonished uh, to realize that the posterior capsule was intact. And it took me a few minutes thinking, how could this large piece of the nucleus find its way to the anterior vitreous? So I realized at that time that I have a zonular weakness and uh, inferiorly and the, through this area of zonulopathy, the, uh, this part of the nucleus could escape from the anterior chamber to the anterior vitreous. I mean, I think that's everyone's dream to think you've got a posterior capsule tear, but it's not. It's, uh, you know, that's what everyone wants the outcome to be. It's usually the opposite. And uh, how did you go about rescuing this piece that was behind the capsule, basically? Yes, uh, I was thinking at that time, how can I retrieve this part? Because I have either we can call one of my friends of the posterior segment surgeon trying to retrieve uh, this part. But again, I had intact posterior capsule. So I had to make the decision to sacrifice this posterior capsule and try to puncture this posterior capsule to retrieve this part back to the anterior chamber. 
So um, with the MVR or Keratom 1.2, I tried to puncture the posterior capsule and it was very flexible and very flaccid because of the uh, zonular weakness. So I had to do another instrument to try to do some sort of counter traction and puncture this posterior capsule and try to convert this break into a posterior axis. And um, obviously I couldn't uh, convert this iatrogenic break in the posterior capsule into posterior axis because of the same reason of the zonular weakness. So I took the decision after uh, filling the anterior chamber uh, with the dispersive OVD and trying to tamponade the vitreous and preventing the vitreous from collapsing inside the anterior chamber to bring this uh, nucleus through the break that I have already made in the posterior capsule into the anterior chamber. Once I succeeded to bring this uh, nuclear piece in, inside the anterior chamber, I uh, used the scaffold technique uh, that published by Amara Grawal. And I found this technique is very useful to continue fecal emulsification in the presence of open posterior capsule to uh, emulsify the uh, nuclear fragments inside the anterior chamber. Oh, it was beautifully done. I think with all of these complications, it's a it's often a balance between the risk taking, trying to manage it yourself versus just closing up and handing over to someone else, isn't it? I, yes. And, and you obviously had the skills to do it, so it was beautiful. One of the things I took away from it was the scaffold technique, was the idea that, you know, I could fake this piece away while still having a structure in between me and the vitreous space. Is that something you've done before? Yes, I've done many times before, and I found it's very useful because the three-piece lens, when you implant the three-piece lens inside the anterior chamber, you can keep the trailing haptic outside the eye or just keep the anterior chamber, the, the three-piece lens completely inside the anterior chamber. And the, the optic, you can use the optic to plug or to um, block the break inside the posterior capsule so you can continue fecal emulsification. Here, the teaching point is to have to modify the settings, the FECO settings. You have to reduce the ultrasound energy and you have to reduce the bottle height or the infusion pressure. And of course, you have to reduce the aspiration rate and the vacuum and use some sort of slow motion FECO. And of course, you have to inject ample amount of dispersive OVD to protect the corneal endothelium because we are doing FECO emulsification pretty close to the corneal endothelium inside the anterior chamber. Coming in at the number two most listened to episode is a clip from Dr. Rob Weinstock and guest discussion on challenging the dogma of fellowship. I'm here with my co-chief medical editor of CRST, Bill Wiley. Hey Rob, thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. And well, I'm also here with three younger surgeons, uh, two of them, uh, one in training with Dr. Wiley right now in a fellowship training position, Arjan Herhira, and a former fellow, Amir Marafi. And my current fellow, Caroline Watson. And uh, we'd like to kick off this new series of CRST, the podcast, uh, the topic today is around training in ophthalmology and some changes in paradigm and dogma that has been around for a while. And we're here with three young surgeons, uh, as well as an experienced surgeon, uh, who have uh, taken an initiative to try something a little bit new after training uh, in traditional residency and pursue further training, a fellowship in cataract and refractive surgery. 
Now, cataract refractive surgery and complex anterior segment surgery is not traditionally a known fellowship. We have cornea fellowships, we have retina fellowships, oculoplastics, um, very well-established fellowships that people go out and do after uh, training. But historically, at least in my experience in ophthalmology, it kind of was like cataract surgery was the default and you could go right out of residency and become a great cataract surgeon and that was the expectation. But the field has changed tremendously and a lot of surgeons, they go to, on to do cornea fellowships at academic centers. But the word is there's not a lot of cataract surgery or refractive surgery that's done in those traditional cornea fellowships in academic centers. And hence here we are in 2022 and we have a growing number of private sector fellowships specifically focused around cataract refractive surgery. Uh, we've been doing it for about six or seven years in our practice. Bill, how long have you been doing it in yeah, your practice? basically the same, around six, around six or seven years. And there's quite a few of our colleagues that are also doing it. This is a real win-win for both the, the fellows and the experienced surgeons. And uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. I know Bill has too, but I'd like to hear from the young surgeons a little bit about what you feel the changing landscape is going on. What, what made you guys pursue to go out and get extra training versus going right into private practice? Um, Arjun, you want to start? Sure. Well, I was in a position when I interviewed and applied for fellowships where I applied for the cornea, traditional academic cornea fellowships. I applied for private practice refractive fellowships. And I also applied for some of the anterior segment fellowships as well. So I got a pretty decent lay of the land in terms of how much cornea, how much cataract, and how much refractive exposure each type of fellowship was affording. And what I was realizing was in the traditional academic cornea fellowships, understandably the main focus was on doing penetrating keratoplasties, EKs, treating really sick disease, eyes with corneal pathology. But the cataract volume on average was usually only 20 to 40 cataracts. A lot of times those were not straightforward cases, those would go to the residents, and a lot of times those were not consistently spaced out through the year as well. The refractive training, maybe you would do 10 to 20 cases, but a lot of times that was just sort of watching the attending, maybe pushing a button here or there, but you really weren't truly the primary surgeon or really taking ownership of the patients in that regard from a refractive standpoint. And then in stark contrast, when I looked at the private practice fellowships, Harry, you were doing oftentimes over a thousand cataract surgeries in a year, utilizing the latest premium te technology, delivering really amazing refractive outcomes, using the latest IOLs, being involved in clinical research studies, and that was married on the laser vision correction side of things as well, where you were utilizing the latest for SMILE, LASIK, and PRK. So in terms of the value or what you would get out of each fellowship, they could not be more different. Now, if you wanted to do corneal surgery, perhaps the private practice cataract and refractive fellowships would not be the most ideal, although there's some like yours where you get to work with phenomenal corneal surgeons like Neil Desai, get a lot of great cornea uh, and external disease exposure training as well. Sort of the pure cataract refractive fellowships, that's not traditionally been a focus. So if you want to do that, maybe a more traditional academic fellowship would have been the answer. But for what I wanted to do, I wanted to deliver exquisite premium cataract and refractive outcomes for patients to deliver the highest possible quality of care. I wanted to become the best version of myself as a surgeon that I could be. And I just felt like the private practice cataract and refractive fellowships were, were the best route for me. Great. Caroline, um, what, what were your thoughts about going into training versus taking an extra year of training? What were your motivating factors? Uh, what advice would you give to young surgeons about pursuing their goals and training? Sure. I can mirror a lot of what Arjun said as well. Um, I actually found out about these private practice 
fellowships a little bit early on in my training, which is a little unusual. Um, I had a friend do one several years, you know, before me, and um, it kind of shifted my interest as far as what I wanted to do when I was finished. So um, I only applied to private practice fellowships, and it, it went uh, from being something that I wanted to do to something that I felt I needed to do because I was in residency in the midst of COVID. And our surgical numbers, although they are good um, for my program, were diminished during that time. And I didn't feel like I could safely go out into practice, be a really strong surgeon and get myself out of trouble if I, if I had to. And so I felt like this was the best opportunity for me to really polish my skill set and really get exposure to private practice because I didn't want to go into academia and I knew that I would get excellent training under, you know, the, the attendings or the mentors that had these fellowships. Host Dr. Carolini Maya Rocha tees up our next clip from the episode titled Considerations in New Refractive IOLs. The February issue of CRST for which I served as guest medical editor features articles that explore the latest IOL technologies and provide information about their design concepts, advantage and disadvantage. Today, I am joined by the two of the issue's authors, Dr. Mark Lobanoff and Dr. George Waring, uh, for a discussion of their articles, which explore challenges in IOL inventory, management and how to address them to increase efficiency as well as the positive and negative ripple effects of expanded IOL options. George, let's start with your article. Uh, great job. And again, thank you for um, participating. So your article dives into the pros and cons of expanded presbyopia correcting IOL options. Can you outline the upsides to having so many options as described in your article? Carolyn, we live in an unprecedented time where we have more options than ever to serve our patients well. And with the landscape that's rapidly evolved over our careers, and I um, can't wait to hear Mark's thoughts on this as well, we're, we're doing more and more lens-based procedures. And this is not only for refractive cataract surgery, but also for refractive lens surgery in general uh, and for the treatment of presbyopia and hyperopia. And so we're so fortunate to have options where we can truly customize the approach, not only to each individual, but also to each eye itself, treating each eye as an individual. And this has led to uh, not only a, a, a broader functionality that we can offer uh, with the best tolerability that we've had access to in history, um, but really allows us to customize the approach uh, for all different levels of eye health and relative candidacy. And so this is just a really wonderful time 
to do what we do and be able to deliver the outcomes that we can deliver. And um, I mean, I'm just really excited to hear uh, Mark's thoughts on on the kind of the the what it's like from his perspective, and um, you know, kind of on the upsides of having all the options that we have these days. George, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we really live in the golden age of IOLs right now. There are so many options. Everything from EDOF lenses. We've seen tremendous advancements in the evolution of multifocal lenses, the new trifocal lenses, um, and then things that are somewhat in between, things like the iHansons, extended depth of field in the, uh, you know, to our general lenses, and all sorts of toric options that are available. On top of this, even new lenses that are just about to hit the market, like the IC8, small aperture lenses. So I completely agree with you. We, we're we really seeing as a revolution in refractive surgery. For the last 10 years, we've been thinking a lot of refractive cataract surgery. And right now, my practice is evolving quite a bit for that age group between about 45 and 55, where perhaps in the past we would reach for LASIK, now more and more turning to refractive lens exchange for those patients. So very exciting, but presents some unique challenges. How do you discuss so many options, which are different and sometimes in subtle ways with patients and do that in an efficient manner and make sure we're delivering the best care for our patients? George and Mark, those are really great comments. I agree. And I think it's just so important to really understand the technology and then you can share with your patients you know, what to expect after surgery. So, Dr. Waring, um, can you share some cons, you know, of expanded IOL options, as you described in your article? Well, you know, Mark alluded to the um, the fact that this does not only present unprecedented opportunity, but also um, new considerations that perhaps we've not had to manage. Uh, to this degree in the past, because we really had not had so many options, and this is this has led to um, an evolving decision making process, of which is um, very intuitive to the three of us, um, but perhaps not to um, the a, a greater population that may be starting to embrace presbyopia correction lens-based correction, um, uh, tericity, uh, decision-making, astigmatic correction in general. So um, this is, it really does require sort of an elevated and um, willingness to evolve in your decision-making as to what may be in the best interest of your patients. And again, it's not just a, um, a one-size-fits-all discussion anymore. And I think that really sort of sums up the, the primary um, con, uh, consideration. I don't really think of this as a con. I think this is, uh, we're trying to think of everything in a positive light, but with more options comes increasing complexity. So we're constantly optimizing our efficiency and trying to streamline the process to, um, to minimize uh, chair time, maximize efficiency. And that's really um, in the best interest of our patients to a degree as well, because 
in in our clinic, and and I'm sure you all would agree, we we try to value our patients' time as much or more than ours uh, because everybody is busy. Everybody, uh, particularly in these younger generations that we're serving, you know, people want the information and they want it concise and um, and they like to make their decisions and move on. And so, furthermore. For our patient, for our not only our patients but also our staff, this requires constantly evolving and streamlined processes with constantly updating our um, our information internally, and that's not only to keep things accurate and precise, but it's also to cut down on um, any risk of medical error because we have so many different options. Uh, and, um, and of course, as we get more options, costs change and costs increase. And so more and more, we're constantly having to update that as well. So any one change sends a ripple effect through not only our internally, but also um, in the surgery centers that we participate with. So there's, it's, it's, an, it's a more complex uh, circumstance that really does require a, a, a very very careful and unified effort to make sure that we're, that everybody's staying um, up to date and aligned. Up next is a clip from an episode hosted by Dr. D. Brian Kim on mastering the preoperative consultation. As guest medical editor of CRST's July issue, I had the opportunity to present a series of challenging scenarios which I have personally encountered and struggled with during the preoperative consultation. And so I'm thrilled to be here as host of today's discussion of a few of these scenarios. Joining me are three of the contributors to this issue, Drs. Nicole Fram, Morgan Mescheletti, and Ashley Brissett and each shared how they'd manage these tough scenarios. So the first scenario is talking to the patients about specific refractive goals. So here's a case. A 57-year-old computer programmer presents for a cataract surgery consultation and notes his strong desire for spectacle independence. He explains that several of his friends recently had cataract surgery. One had the Acrosoft Panoptics lens, another had the Technus Eyehance, and another had this Acrosoft Vividi lens. And so the patient has done quite a bit of research online, but the Iowa options are confusing to him, and he wants to pick the best one for his visual needs. And so the first question is, you know, with the current available IOL options, you know, what's your decision-making tree for choosing the right IOL for a patient seeking spectacle independence? And then assuming the patient passes all the typical preoperative screening tests, you know, macular OCT, coronal topography, endothelial cell count, Etc. How would you frame the conversation with the patient regarding his specific refractive goals and what the IOL can achieve? So, Ashley, this is a scenario for which you offered your thoughts in the publication. Would you please provide an overview of your response? 
Yeah, so my response kind of ended up being quite long to this. And I think that really speaks to how this decision making can sometimes feel somewhat complex. Um, But I try to break it down to make it a little bit more digestible to four specific questions. So what I think to myself when I see patients that are maybe looking for a more advanced technology lens are what's the patient's current refraction? So what are they used to doing? How are they currently wearing their glasses? Have they done monovision before or mini monovision? Because that might help me kind of guide my direction in terms of what I recommend for a lens implant. And then the second question that I ask myself is, what what are the patient's post-operative visual goals? And you really have to listen to the patient here because they will tell you what's important to them and really getting to the bottom of what is important to them so you can provide that as a visual goal, I think becomes really, um, really necessary in counseling and guiding that direction and conversation in the lens options. And then question three is, what can the patient afford? Because we do know that some of these more advanced technology intraocular lenses are an out-of-pocket cost for the patient. So is this even going to be financially available to them? And then lastly, and kind of at the end of the day, you know, we are the final decision maker. So what is my recommendation based on all of this information? I mean, there's so many lenses that we can choose from nowadays that it can feel somewhat overwhelming. And it's overwhelming for us to think about how overwhelming it must feel for the patient to make that final decision. So I always present the options to the patient. And then I will generally say, you know, in my opinion, I think these would be your best options. What are you thinking? And if they need more directed care, I often say something like, well, if you were my family member or friend, this is what I would strongly recommend for you. Because some people do want some more directed answers. Other people might want to kind of come to a decision a little bit more easy. Actually, I, I read your piece and I, I really loved everything you said about it. I think starting from what you said, you got to listen to the patient and you want to know where their starting point is. I think that that's kind of like your frame of reference to kind of extrapolate what the patient already has and able to achieve refractively and then what more do they want. And, and like you said, um, listening to the patient. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think Absolutely. Those are things that all of us should be doing. Any thoughts from uh, Morgan and Nicole to add? I I completely agree with what Ashley said. I mean, I think it's all about the preoperative discussion with the patient and really setting expectations. I love that you said, uh, you know, this is what I would do if it were if you were my mother. I think that's a great thing. I've I've gotten into trouble with some of my uh, younger patients. And so I make sure to say, this is what I would do if you were my sister or brother. Yeah, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> but uh, no, I think I think those are all perfect points, and I agree completely. So this patient is a younger patient, and they are computer programmers, so they're very precise in their thinking. If this patient is uh, low myope, uh, they are going to expect a certain quality of vision. And if they look at their phone without glasses and they read without glasses and their dream is to be out of glasses for distance, the only kind of option for them is going to be some sort of mini monovision with a precise uh, monofocal enhanced lens, such as the eye hands. Uh, If the patient is really motivated to be out of glasses for everything, you can have the conversation about a trifocal um, or a multifocal, but they have to understand that this is not going to be as crisp um, as what they're used to as a low myope. And I think the last point is that if patients have friends that have had different technology, it's very important to explain to them that what works for some patients is not necessarily going to work for them because they have different anatomy and different expectations. 
Yeah, I think patients also like really want to customize care. I think in the old days of cataract surgery, and that's not even that long ago, that's just a few years ago, we had a limited number of lens options to choose from. And we kind of just had like one or two lenses that people generally used. But now we have so many available that cataract surgery itself really needs to become customized care for each patient. Yeah, I love that. I think customized care is a is a great phrase for for exactly what this is. And you're right, we do have so many options now, and it's really our job to distill what we think is most important and relevant for the patient to know. I mean, we we obviously, you know, as much as we'd love to have the time to take each patient through each of the risks and benefits of each individual IOL, we just don't have the time, right? So that that puts a lot of burden on us. But I, I think that by distilling that information down to outcomes. Uh, can really help a patient align their expectations with what actually happens postoperatively. Yeah, I agree. And implicit to that is really just taking the time. You know, I mean, you know, we're very busy. We're seeing, you know, a lot of patients, reimbursements are shrinking. And sometimes you just feel the pressure that you got to keep moving. But I think, uh, like you all have said, you just need to take a time, pause, slow down, and really be able to extract that information from the patient. And rounding out our best of episode is a clip from Dr. Kathy McCabe's roundtable discussion from the episode, Presbyopia Perspectives. In this episode, we're diving into presbyopia correction from drops to devices. You did kind of touch on this, Steve, too, you know, having other options that help with more complicated patients. So I know we now have on the horizon the small aperture IOL, like the IC8. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Anybody would like to comment on where they think that's going to fit in their practice? I'm super excited about it for my patients with previous RK, or I have a a large thriving cornea practice. And, and I'd say there's a number of patients who could absolutely benefit from the technology who had these, you know, aberrated corneas. I know that the studies were done with, you know, so-called normal patients and, and they get, a, you know, also a eat off effect there as well. Um, however, where I, I see it most useful is, is with the more aberrated corneas. I agree with Audrey. I'm probably going to start there as well with my aberrated corneas, post-RK, keratoconus, corneal scars. I've seen a lot of good data from our colleagues overseas showing pretty significant improvement in the best corrected vision after the IC8 lens uh, because they're decreasing those higher order aberrations. Um, but it is a nice lens because you kind of get to hit two birds with one stone. You get the you know improvement in, in the, of the image quality in these aberrated corneas, but you also get that extended um, depth of focus. And so it's sort of like you're offering almost a presbyopia correction to these aberrated eyes that you otherwise would not have ever been able to offer unless you did full on uh, monovision. And I know a lot of colleagues uh, have been using it for that purpose as well. And I think they will place it either in both eyes or perhaps only the non-dominant eye and aim a little bit uh, mini mono, like a one and a quarter or so in the non-dominant eye. I have heard that you can get some dimness if you place it in both eyes. So that is one thing that I'm gonna look forward to counseling my patients on. So interestingly enough, I've you know had several patients that have been waiting, waiting, waiting for the lens. Um, and you know we keep getting told it's gonna be here 
now hopefully it looks like the fall. Um, but I had a patient recently that uh, couldn't wait. Uh, she was post-RK with some irregularities, and she actually went to Europe to one of our colleagues um, and wound up having surgery. And, and they actually put, put an, an ICA in one eye and an LAL in the other eye. Um, and, you know, it is, I, I was actually kind of impressed with the results in the ICA. So I actually have a patient with an ICA, not done by me, but um, I did, I, I do have her and I'm monitoring her. And it's really amazing at the effect that it can have um, in reducing aberrations in patients that have irregular corneas, um, as well as uh, extending depth of focus by having that small aperture. So I do see this as a, as a lens that's going to find a place. Um, in my practice, for sure, um, because I do see a lot of um, irregular corneas and things like that. Yeah, I think that, that one of the interesting things to me is when we have a refractive target that's labile, like a post-RK patient, is that you do get this refractive forgiveness, both for up to a diopter and a quarter of astigmatism and even a diopter of refractive error on either side of Plano. And so if you think that things are moving throughout the day a little bit, and that's a moving target, something that has that added forgiveness throughout the day while still giving some increase in depth of focus with a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit of myopic offset to begin with, I think there can't be a better solution uh, for patients who have something that's moving throughout the day, like an RK patient. And, you know, and even the patients that don't have irregular corneas, I think that extended depth of field that the lens offers um, may be a choice for the patients um, that we don't necessarily want to do a lot of monovision, but by, you know, by using this lens, we can get them more range of vision, you know, just targeting distance or slightly off distance um, without having to create a lot of night vision issues. Yeah. And the small aperture also gives some refractive forgiveness too, both for the Spherical yeah, equivalent stigmatism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is really a, a cool aspect of it too. In the patient, since you're you're you know one unique amongst us, uh, Mitch, and having experience with this, uh, with your patient, did the patient notice that there was some dimming on the side with the IC8 uh, compared to their LAL eye, or no comment on that? You, you know, well, so it's kind of early. So the patient recently had surgery, um, and. I still actually, I'm going to have to do the light adjustments for the patient on their, on the eye that had the, the LAL. So she's not seeing as well. So she's actually seeing better with the IC8 lens right now than the LAL lens. And she's just so happy because of the fact that, you know, there was really very limited options for her. I mean, there was nothing that was going to give her perfect vision. And, you know, really her goal was to be able to drive and she does not, absolutely does not want to wear contact lenses. So even though she doesn't have a perfect refraction, um, it's really eliminated way, you know, she had, I'm going to say four to seven diopters of astigmatism in her corneas, um, that IC8 lens is manifesting right now at uh, plus a quarter minus one twenty five, And she's very happy with that. It's not, it's not your traditional thought process, you know, necessarily. I mean, these patients that really have irregular corneas, if you can, if you can el eliminate the majority of their aberration, most of them are going to be happy because you wouldn't have achieved it with another lens. Yeah, absolutely. It might be able to get them out of something else they might need, like a scleral lens or, or other solutions. That completes our best of compilation from the top episodes of 2022. We'll be back next year with a fresh round of thought-provoking discussions on anterior segment surgery. 
Thanks for tuning in, and from everyone at CRST and Bryn Mawr Communications, have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year.